Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Friday, May 11th, 2007, and I'm Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, the topic will be spiritual care of families in the intensive care unit. Our discussants are Richard J. Wall, MD, MPH, and Nancy Chambers, MDiv. Dr. Wall is a senior research fellow in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, and Reverend Chambers is the director of spiritual care both from the University of Washington Healthcare System, and they are joining us today from Seattle, Washington. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the, the actual reference for the paper, and again, the title of the paper is the same. It is entitled Spiritual Care of Families in the Intensive Care Unit, and the reference is Critical Care Medicine, uh, 2007, Volume 35, Number 4, page 1084. And again, uh, just uh, for the record, this is part of the of the group uh, by Dr. J. Randall Curtis, whom we have done a previous podcast, I guess now about a year and a half ago, uh, which was met with great enthusiasm, and we were very excited to be able to work uh, and speak with other members of his group today. So why don't we uh, get right into it, and this should be a very, very interesting podcast. Um, I, I thought we'd begin, as I was reading this article in terms of the differences between spirituality and religion, sort of in general, and as you were looking uh, at this particular study, and maybe if you could provide us some background as how you decided to do the study, and either of you can start, whoever would like. That would be great. Hi, this is Dr. Wall. I'll start. Um, we're, the data in this study came from an ongoing cluster randomized trial that we're doing in the Pacific Northwest, aimed at improving end-of-life care for ICU patients. Um, it's part of a larger study by Dr. Randy Curtis um, called IPAC, I-P-A-C-C, or Integrating Palliative and Critical Care. And the data in this study is from the baseline assessments at 10 of the hospitals uh, for whom we had chart abstraction and questionnaire data complete at the time of our analyses. What happened was during a prior study, uh, essentially the pilot study for this larger uh, randomized trial, we had noticed that we had excellent response rates for a family satisfaction survey. This is a survey administered to family members who had a loved one in the ICU. But we noticed that there was a uh, huge uh, non-response rate um, for a couple items on this survey. And so although overall we had a 94% response rate from family members, only two-thirds of family members provided a rating for an item that was asking about their satisfaction as a family member with the spiritual care that they had received in the ICU. And so we thought uh, it merited further uh, investigation 
as we focus more on families in the ICU, we realize that they have a whole set of unique needs, and uh, one of those is going to be spiritual care. Uh, and maybe, uh, Reverend Chambers, if you could take a few minutes and, and perhaps share with the listeners, because you even described this uh, in the paper, uh, that as critical care providers, we may not be the best uh, experts on these issues of either spirituality or religion or both, or if you could take a couple minutes and talk about that, that would be great. Sure. I know that often physi- physicians hesitate to bring up spiritual care or spiritual issues, sometimes based on the way they're trained. If you don't have a black and white answer to a question, it's better not to go there. But what we have found is that it's best if there can be a chaplain, a trained chaplain, on the team so that they can be a part of rounds and pick up on the subtleties of spiritual issues that might be there, and then later return and spend some time teasing out what meaning that might have for the people. One of the ways that we look at spiritual care is that that's how people make meaning out of what's going on in their lives as opposed to religion where there are certain practices that people may use, which certainly is overall a part of their spiritual well-being. But all people have a way of making meaning using their values, that which they have chosen or have been passed on from perhaps one generation to another. And those often come to the fore in the midst of crisis. Often people will say, uh, I haven't thought about this for years. Or I've occasionally had people in the ICU, patients say, you know, I'd like to pray the prayer I prayed when I went to stay at my grandmother's house. Now I lay me down to sleep. And it's hard to get to those those intimate places when there's a whole team of people standing around you making assessments. Yeah, I'd like to touch on that some more uh, because I think anyone who's practiced critical care medicine uh, understands that for a family member, this is a time of crisis. And any time of crisis in life tends to be a time when people... Uh, are a bit introspective and reflective on the meaning and their place and perhaps uh, even larger issues. And so for a lot of people who, the day prior to this ICU admission, family members may have said, yeah, spiritual care, not so important. Uh, This dynamic of being in the ICU with a critically ill loved one, uh, I think it changes the perspective very rapidly. And we're finding that the vast majority of family members who are in the ICU, um, even though they may not have responded to the survey, uh, they do have an opinion about spiritual care. Well, and uh, this is, I was going to save this for the end of the podcast, but let me just ask it now, is uh, from a personal perspective, as a practicing critical care clinician, and I know every hospital, every ICU is going to have a slightly different perspective on this, given the uh, religious and uh, socioeconomic and cultural issues of the particular patient population they have, but it can often be a very 
awkward question even for a critical care doctor to ask. And as I guess you were alluding to, Dr. Wall, it may not be things that we are particularly focused in on, given the multiple things that we may be focused in on, which are very sort of nuts and bolts. And maybe if the two of you would like to make a few comments on that before we go into the study. Yeah, I would propose that although we may not be doing such a great job of assessing spiritual care right now, we could handle a cursory um, assessment of it. I mean, after all, we deal with enormous amounts of data. We integrate it all and make decisions, sometimes very rapidly. Um, we deal with, you know, medication doses and new lab results and vital signs, etc. Um, we also meet with family members, uh, hopefully on a regular basis, and as Western society moves more towards a family-centered approach, intensive care unit, uh, like it or not, these people are, these family members are there to stay, and I think we would need to realize they're not innocent bystanders. Um, but, you know, the question about what can a practicing doctor do, I mean, you're already dealing with an enormous amount of decisions and data, and now are we suggesting that you got to be a spiritual expert? I would say absolutely not. Um, that is not what we're saying here. I think what we're saying is that it's important to recognize that this is a huge area of need for family members. And just the same way we assess social work needs, um, financial needs, and then consult the appropriate trained expert to come in and help us with those issues, uh, I think we should assess spiritual needs of family members um, and consult a trained uh, pastoral person to come in if there is a need. Nancy, perhaps you can talk a little bit about that, too. Sure. Uh when we train our students in clinical pastoral education, we tell them that they should make rounds with the team, if at all possible, so that they hear um, and can watch the interactions, watch people's eyes about the things that may frighten them. Um, sometimes people get very confused with receiving information, especially bad news. And if they can be a part of the team, that's the best thing. But they also can go on their own and talk to the family and sit down and try and assess whether being present for that family on this particular end-of-life journey, if it seems to be moving that way, um, is a calming way of being with them because sometimes just being one-on-one -on -one and listening to the questions that they're struggling with, we don't have the exact answers to the questions either, but we've seen that if you accompany people, if you're present to them, if you accept their fears, their struggles, the fact that they're confused and they're, they may not be sure what treatment is best, that that gives them a chance to find their own voice and also to tell stories. If the patient can't speak for themselves, to tell stories about the person and sometimes out of the stories emerge what the best decision might be and they can all agree upon it in a more relaxed setting than around the bedside when you're talking in front of the patient, trying to decide whether to move to comfort care 
it's hard for a family to make those decisions bedside. This can often be an incredible challenge, the timing of when to ask about spiritual care, Mm -hmm. concerns that perhaps if if we bring it up too early, it's going to imply to the family that we're concerned that the patient may be close to death when they may or may not be, or they may not be ready to hear that. and then, and then finally, you know, that you mentioned about bringing up stories when that, in fact, can open up a wellspring of emotion, which can be very challenging for everybody involved. So I, I was really grateful for your points. Um, Dr. Wall, just, just a couple of points, and, and this is point two on our little discussion here, is that your goals of the study was first, you identified whether ICU family members who rate the spiritual care are somehow different from family members who do not rate spiritual care. And then among ICU family members rating their spiritual care, you examined whether there were certain factors that might be associated with higher satisfaction scores. And I thought I'd let you talk for a couple of minutes about those goals of the study and how you you came up with that. I had alluded to in a previous study, we had an excellent response rate on this family satisfaction survey, except for a couple items, one of which was this spiritual care item. And although we had 94% response rates, we had a third of people not answer this one item. And the question arose, is it just because it's not important to a third of people, or is it because there's something systematically different about the people who are answering this question and those who aren't? So that led to the first question, are there systematic differences between people who go ahead and rate their spiritual care and those who don't. Um, And then, more importantly, I thought was, what are the determinants of uh, satisfaction with spiritual care? Are there family or patient factors? Are there processes of care? We looked at all of these using chart abstraction as well as demographics to see if there are differences between people who are very satisfied and those who are not. And we thought that this was a really important first step because this is an exploratory field right now. No one has really started to examine this issue in any detail. And we thought this would be a great first step for future research on an emerging topic. Uh, The first question was, are there differences between people who answer the question and don't? Second question was, among people who do answer this question, what determines higher satisfaction scores? And we found there was actually just a few things, one of which was the consultation of a pastoral expert in the final 24 hours of their loved one's uh, life in the ICU. Mind you, this was a study of uh, patients dying in the ICU or within 24 hours of their ICU discharge. Um, Now, we can't talk about a necessary causation pathway. I mean, this is an observational study, and admittedly, we're just talking about relationships or correlations between these two uh, points. So is it because we consulted a spiritual expert that there is higher satisfaction, or do people who have higher satisfaction tend to request a spiritual consult? I actually don't know the answer to that question, Um, but I think it's important to recognize that there is a relationship between these two, and I think it gives us some targets for improving the spiritual care of family members in the ICU. One of the other things I liked about the paper was you discussed that the uh, paradigm for the delivery of the uh, pastoral consults was different in some of the different hospitals that the study was involved in. And I was wondering if either of you sort of had thoughts about what might be the best way in terms of sort of a routine uh, of somebody from the pastoral services coming by and asking if they wish to be involved rather than having it that somebody has to figure out and ask if they want to consult, if you'd like to take that from there. I'll just mention that this was actually a yeah. Uh, I think an excellent uh, example of the benefits of peer review. A a reviewer said, I, on the initial 
writing up of this manuscript did not talk about the different spiritual resources at these 10 hospitals. And reviewers said, hey, you, you know, we want to know a little bit more. So I went back to the 10 hospitals and talked to all the spiritual uh, people, um, sometimes only by phone uh, or email, but at least got a sense of what were the resources available. And it, you're absolutely right. They were very different. Um, at a 7 out of 10 sites, there was someone who rounds every day on all ICU patients. But the other three had much less involvement in spiritual people, not because they wanted to be less involved, more just a practical issue of resource availability. I mean, at one hospital, this spiritual advisor was doing, I would say, some soft social work. I mean, they were everything in this hospital. And they said it was just not possible for them on their uh, 0.6, you know, uh, equivalent salary to be there every day on ICU rounds. They tried to come by a few times each week, and they would certainly visit anyone who was requested, um, either by the family or by the nurse or the doc. Um, but I think we got to keep that in mind as we look at the results of our study, because we have pretty uh, spiritual-heavy resources at our hospital. <laughs> I mean, Nancy and I are sitting in an office surrounded by an army of spiritual care experts, and other hospitals don't have this luxury. So what can a practicing ICU doctor do? Someone listening to this podcast is saying, you know, give me something I can take away. I think there's, uh, it's important to be aware there are some very simple screening questions, some of them better in terms of validity and development than others, but there are some very uh, useful um, sets of questions that you can do in less than a minute. And basically I'd call this the spiritual screening test. And if you get any positive responses from a family member that suggests a need, at that point, that would indicate that there is a need, and just like you would consult social work to assist with some social work issues, you go ahead and consult a spiritual expert. Hopefully, you have someone available in your medical system. Uh, we reference several different studies. People have developed different screening tools. The uh, American College of Physicians and American Society of Internal Medicine have put out some simple questions, and other people have written more elaborate articles about taking a spiritual history, um, all of them geared towards practicing clinicians. One of the questions I wanted to ask, uh, I think Reverend Chambers, mostly you, and it relates to this last paragraph that I wanted to read to conclude, was I'm often afraid of, of asking the question wrong, um, afraid that if I either ask the wrong kind of religion person to work with them, I might upset or offend somebody. Do you have any advice in general so that it isn't something to be concerned about asking about? You know, the, the ACP questions that I alluded to, they actually propose four simple questions that a physician can ask a seriously ill patient. Now, I should mention that a lot of what we're talking about with family members in an ICU, this research is a, um, a branch off of the critically ill or terminally ill patient body of research. In fact, I think our study um, is one of the first of its kind to really look in detail at determinants of family satisfaction with spiritual care in the ICU. But nonetheless, I think the issues probably are uh, applicable. The first question for screening is just say, is faith important to you? So it's just assess the importance. Is religion or spirituality or faith important to you? Second question would be, if not now, has it been important to you at other times in your life? Uh, third question would be, do you have someone to talk to? about these issues. And the fourth would be, do you want to explore these issues? I think 
if you cover those four questions, you know, is it important now? Has it been important in the past? Do you have someone to talk to? And would you like someone to talk to? I think this simple screening set of questions will give you the ability to quickly flush out the vast majority of people who have a need of spiritual care. Reverend Timbers, maybe you can elaborate a little bit more. The chances of offending someone are usually fairly slight, especially when they're in crisis. I think that there are ways of, you can get away from the questions, too, by saying, I know there's an awful lot going on here now, and part of our team is a chaplain, and they'll be touching base with you later. I mean, that's a way to, that way the patient knows, the family knows that um, that you're concerned, but that you're not trying to step in. And frequently when our team does that, families will say, oh, I'm so glad because in, in Harborview's case, we're a trauma center for about a quarter of the landmass of the United States. So some of our people in the ICUs are truly outside of their own community. So to say, oh, we didn't even know where the Roman Catholic Cathedral is, and it's two blocks down the street. Um, so if you can say something, you might even hear what the need is and chart it and give a call to spiritual care and we'll respond. So it seems like two of the important things other than the important conclusions that you mentioned before of your study was one, I think some of the heterogeneity in how spiritual care is delivered in the various hospitals and two, to not have a fear of making sure that family members and patients get the spiritual care that they deserve, or at least an opportunity to have that if they wish it. Yeah, well, as any of our listeners know, heterogeneity of delivery of care is nothing new in the intensive care unit, um, and all too rampant, especially for things for which there's great evidence that we should be doing. But at the same time, I don't think there's any one-size-fits-all spiritual care approach. Um, but I think everyone should make an attempt to First, be aware of this issue, so have some knowledge, and second, realize that it is important uh, to a majority of family members. Uh, Dr. Wall, uh, we're sort of at the end of the interview. Were there any sort of uh, final concluding points that you wanted to leave with the listeners other than the ones you've already made about uh, about spiritual care and what you learned in the exploration of this uh, topic? I think I'd like to see some other um sites, particularly other parts of the country. Uh, I trained in the southeast United States, and I know that the attitudes of clinicians and family members towards religion and spirituality are different. So I think, and you mentioned, you know, a predominantly Jewish population, perhaps in the northeast. I think it would be useful for other sites uh, to share their experiences and their learning um, and publish those results so that we can perhaps develop some better uh, resources for clinicians. Um, I think we're just at the beginning of this field of research. I think that uh, what I notice with the people that I train, and occasionally we will have a medical student take one of our clinical pastoral education units, 
that I find the same thing with physicians that I find with seminary students, that it's difficult to look at your own death history and death experience and what you fear most, dying, what situation brings the most fear to you uh, as you think about dying in a certain circumstance. And the more physicians become comfortable with those parts of their history, the more they will be comfortable talking with patients and families. We've been speaking today with Dr. Richard J. Wall and Reverend Nancy Chambers from the University of Washington in Seattle regarding the very interesting topic of spiritual care of families in the intensive care unit. I'm so glad you both could join us today on the podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been great talking to you. This concludes our podcast for Friday, May 11th, 2007. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. As a general study rule, practitioners should start preparing intensively for their board exams at least one year in advance. Register today for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Adult and Pediatric Multiprofessional Critical Care Review Courses to be held August 7th through 11th, 2007 in Chicago, Illinois, USA. As a registered participant of a review course, you'll receive a free study aid worth $175. In addition, you can enhance your board review by registering for one of two pre-courses the ABIM Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review, or the Rapid Response System Training. Build a solid foundation and further your study efforts with the only multi-professional association that focuses solely on critical care. Register today by visiting www.sccm.org or calling 1-847-827-6888.